Well, happy Labor Day weekend. And I'm sure it's uh, more rain here today, but that's <laughs> nothing new, right? And so it seems anyway. Um, but uh, I, I uh, wanted to uh, begin this morning with, um, with something that would be helpful to you. And um, so I have a piece of advice if you're out this weekend uh, hiking through the woods or anything. And um, if you get lost in the woods, here's what you do. You find a possum and follow it. Because you'll be on the road in no time. Yeah, all right. Okay, seriously. I really do want to help you today. And along with the Apostle Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, uh, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. And that's my desire this morning, to provide some information to help you understand our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So would you open your Bibles with me, please? to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to spend time today in verses 12 to 31, verses 12 to 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, somewhere close at hand should be one of our Bibles, um, page 799 in that Bible, or of course on your phone or tablet, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 12. But let me summarize where we were last week, the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 12. And, and real easily, we can just look at verse 7, because I think that really is a great summary. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, pretty much summarizes all those 11 verses. And so here's what Paul says in, uh, in verse 7. In verse 7, there it is. Now, to each one, the manifestation, the demonstration of the Spirit of the, is given for the common good. So, to each one, Paul says, every individual, he's talking to the church, he's talking to believers, every individual is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the demonstration, the display of the power of the Spirit of God in the sense of spiritual gifts. So to each one, every one of us who knows Jesus has been given a God-given special ability for service. That is include, or includes the power of God. It, it's an amazing thing. We don't serve. We don't do under our own power. God is the one who enables us to do that, the Spirit of God. And then he says, for the common good. And the common good means the church. The spiritual gifts that each of us as believers have, at least one, are, are for the good of the church, the common good. That's who Paul is talking about there, for the mutual, not personal benefit of everyone within the church. And that's an interesting thing, and as we continue to work through the spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14, one of the things it's very important that we understand, and it will affect what we believe about some of the other more what we call spectacular gifts, the sign gifts. When we understand they're given for the good of the church, not for the benefit of the individual, we'll gain some understanding there. And so it's critical that we get that. God gives 
spiritual gifts for each believer to use to build up the church, the body of Christ. Now that's in a nutshell what those first 11 verses are all about. And I mentioned last week, as it relates to spiritual gifts, um, they have been, over the years, one of the most controversial and divisive issues, subjects, topics um, in the church for a lot of years. Uh, there was a huge gap of time when there really wasn't much going on in that whole area. We'll talk more about that when we deal with those signs, gifts, uh, in, an, in, a, in a little bit down the road. We get into chapter 14. But uh, the first century church in Corinth had problems. The spiritual gifts were creating division in the church. Many, especially as we'll see in chapter 14, wanted the gift of tongues. In fact, they're all being encouraged to use it. They're all being encouraged to seek it, like everybody should have that. And we sometimes hear that today when you're studying the charismatic movement or reading about the Pentecostal churches that practice this today. It's like for everybody, folks, the absolute truth of the Word of God is it is not for everybody. No gift is for everybody. And we're going to see that here this morning as we look at this. So when it comes to understanding spiritual gifts in these three chapters, there are two basic positions. I mentioned them last week. The first is called continuationism. Simply put, that is uh, the gifts that were given to the first century church. We read primarily about them uh, their exercise, the demonstration of them throughout the book of Acts. Yes, Paul is dealing with it here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, just if, you want to, if you're taking notes and want to write down uh, the, the four passages in Scripture where you can find reference to spiritual giftedness has to do with uh, 1 Corinthians 12, where we are today, and Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, all right? Those four passages make reference to spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And you can study in those, and we're going to be making reference to, but the, the, the especially the, what we're talking about, the sign gifts, the signs and wonders movement, uh, the, the gift of tongues and healing and miracles, those gifts are typically the ones that continuationism, those who would take that position believe that they're still in operation today, still to be used today. The other side of that is what we call cessationism. And cessationism says, no, those gifts, the miraculous gifts, the gifts of healing and miracles and tongues, those sign gifts, those that many times are called the signs and wonders movement, ceased at the end of the first century. When, when the church was founded and, and it was built, scripture, and we'll talk about that, uh, the, the revelation that we have, the Bible that we call today, uh, it, it was completed and no longer needed. Now... That's the position. There are variations of both of these, but this is primarily where the controversy comes as to whether those gifts have continued or whether they have ceased. And we'll deal more with that as we get into the end of 1 Corinthians 13 and then definitely as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's jump in and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 starting at verse 12, verses 12 and 13. And this is what Paul says, just as a body, though one, 
has many parts, all, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So we see one body, one Spirit. We, we get the idea of the unity. What's Paul talking about? Well, there are two very important issues here in verses 12 and 13. And, and actually, verse 13 especially is a verse you ought to to mark down, put a star by it, circle it, however you mark your Bible or your, your um, tablet uh, to do that. But number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is right here in verse 13, and this is where many times we get confused and adds uh, misunderstanding to those arguments of either continuationism or cessationism. And one of the things where there's... Cr- Confusion created is right here by not understanding what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is or is simply called the baptism of the Spirit. And Paul says in verse 13, we were all baptized into or by one Spirit. That's it. There's the, the, whole, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is how the body of Christ, the church, was put together. In the New Testament, there are a number of different pictures Uh, Word pictures, metaphors used to describe the church. It's called a building. It's called the bride of Christ. Paul talked in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians about the field, all right? Here we're talking about the body. The body of Christ is a metaphor that Paul uses to refer to the church, to those believers who were saved from the day of Pentecost when the church began, Acts chapter 2, to when Jesus comes again at the rapture. That's the church age, the body of Christ. And we believe in the local church. Scripture's clear about that. Paul is writing to a local church in the city of Corinth. And there is a local body of believers there in Corinth. And uh, so as we look at this, the baptism of the Spirit, we're told that we, who? All believers, we are baptized, we're all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, so as to form the church. All who come to know Jesus Christ are formed into the church, the body of Christ, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was promised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And if you remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus had been resurrected. And we get to chapter 1, and Luke is writing, and we get down to verse 5, and he says, For John, speaking of John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. A few days was 10 days. We know right here the first couple of verses tell us that this is 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he says, in a few days, verse 5, Acts 1, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 10 days later, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, the Holy Spirit came on the church as has been promised. And the believers at that time were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's when the church began. They were made members of the body of Christ. This is something, the baptism of the Spirit, that does not happen happens subsequent to salvation. 
And this is where a lot of confusion comes in. People think that the baptism of the Spirit happens any time after you're saved. It doesn't matter when. It would be based upon when you gain enough spiritual knowledge or understanding, when you become spiritually mature. Many times they would say that spiritual maturity, that level of growth would be indicated when you can speak in tongues. And when you can speak in tongues, then you are baptized into the Holy Spirit and added to the body. Well, that's just not true. The moment you're saved, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because we're told we're all baptized as believers. Well, if we're baptized into the church the moment we're saved, that means everybody is baptized. There would be nobody walking around who wouldn't be baptized by the Spirit. And yet, the continuationists would say, well, at some point after salvation, when you gain a level of spiritual maturity, then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit at that point. Well, that means there would be believers walking around who weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, Scripture says that's not the case. That happens the moment we're saved, when we're added to the church, the body of Christ. This is also um, not the same as the filling of the Spirit. You see, we also confuse what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit. Paul told the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit, actually be continually filled with the Spirit. The actual grammar would be, uh, be being filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to be under the control of the Spirit of God. That's a command. That happens various times. I could be filled today and under the control of the Spirit of God and choose to sin tomorrow and absolutely not be filled with the Spirit. The filling is to do with control. It is not the coming or going of the Spirit as part of our lives, and we'll see more about that in just a minute. But the baptism of the Spirit is not the filling of the Spirit. Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Never in Scripture are we commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. It happens at the moment we come to know Jesus Christ. And all are not filled. There's only once in Scripture, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, the day the church began, that uh, both happened together that we have any recorded evidence of the filling of the Spirit happening at the same time as the baptism of the Spirit, and that's Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. You can read the context there, the day the church began. It's the only time the two are connected together. So the baptism of the Spirit is the act of the Spirit of God by which we as believers who come to know Jesus Christ are added to the body of Christ, the church. We become one with Christ one with one another at the baptism of the Spirit. Secondly, we, we read about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, there's a lot of information in these texts that we're going over today, but this stuff is critical to your understanding where we would be, where we would land, and what we believe about whether the spectacular, the signs and wonders, the gifts there have continued after the first century church or if they have ceased. And we need to understand all this. So the indwelling of the Spirit, when Paul says at the end of verse 13 
Uh, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The one spirit to drink. That's when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of each believer. Back in the book of John, Jesus referred to being born of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an unusual thing to make reference to water as it's talking about the Holy Spirit. But as we drink, as we pour in, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, to take up his residence in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we were there uh, a number of months ago, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? When we get saved, we are baptized in the Spirit, added to the church, the body of Christ. We are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. We become the temple. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place. Remember in the Old Testament, right? The temple. That is the dwelling place of God. And until the church began, when the Holy Spirit, when God himself took up residence in our lives as believers the day the church began. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We were indwelled by the Spirit of God. That's not accompanied by tongues. All right? Uh, many would believe, well, that, that has to be. That's how you know. No, the day I'm saved, the moment I trust Christ, I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit takes up residence in my life and in your life if you know Jesus Christ. Now, as a gift, as an active spiritual gift at the time that Paul was writing, Gifts at that point, first century church, were active, were being used. And we're going to see more about the tongues gift uh, as we get there. But at that time, you see the idea, tongues were not given to every believer. And yet what we hear today many times is that if you're spiritual, you should be able to speak in tongues. Everybody should have that gift. And yet that's not at all what Scripture teaches and so we know that here. So the idea of tongues not being something that everybody has in dwelling does happen to every believer. Everyone who trusts Christ as Savior, who is forgiven, who becomes a member of the church, the body of Christ, who is baptized by the Spirit, is then indwelled by the Spirit. It happens both things at the same time. The moment we trust Jesus Christ as Savior happens to all of us who know Christ. Now, you got to hold on to that. You got to remember that because that's critical to how we look at the sign gifts, the spectacular, the sensational spiritual gifts that we'll be talking about down the road. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. So then Paul goes on and he says, um, even so, the body, again, now he's, 
He's just, he goes going back and forth between the, the metaphor of the church, the body, the physical body, even so the body is not made up of one part but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You see, Paul is talking about the body, our physical bodies. And, and imagine, I mean, this is, this is really pretty simple, pretty basic. You just read the plain sense of it, and it's there. Okay, now if your foot, everybody touch their foot, all right? You, you got your hand on your foot? Yeah, okay, so if your foot, now we're not going to do like Simon Says or anything, just, just Simon Says, touch your foot, okay, drop your foot, no, ha, see, no, uh, anyway, so if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, put your hand up, right, everybody got their hand, yeah, so if the body, if the foot was to say, and again, he's talking about the body, but he's making the analogy that this is like the church, the body of Christ, so one member who's the foot, if the foot should say to the hand, I'm not the hand, therefore I'm not part of the body, Paul says, I mean, it's like, that's ridiculous. Does that mean that the foot is no longer part of the body? Of course not. And then he says, if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, right? Now we could do head and shoulders, knees and toes, right? But we'll do, here's your ear and here's your eye. And Paul says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't stop it from being an, a part of the body as the ear. Because if, if the whole body, now I, it doesn't take much for me to picture these things. There are some visual pictures that really help in understanding. If you can just picture your body as a big eyeball, Right? Just rolling around here on stage, right? That's what he's talking. He says, okay, so if the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Well, duh, you wouldn't, right? That's what he's saying. And then he goes on and he says, or if the whole body was an ear, now he's talking to the ear, where would, how would you smell? That's the nose, right? This is basic anatomy. And Paul is saying, there. Don't underestimate your giftedness. You say, what? Oh, think with me. The foot says, hey, I'm not a hand, so I'm not in part of the body. I'm just, I'm just not that important. Not, nobody needs me. I'm just inferior uh, to the hand. The hand gets all the attention. The hand's waving around all the time, and the foot's all the way down here on the floor, and we cover it up with our shoes or boots, and and, you know, it's like, so I, I, I wish I was the hand, but because I'm not the hand, I'm not that important. I, nobody cares about me. Paul says that's ridiculous. Doesn't mean you're inferior. It doesn't mean the ability that God has given you is less than another part of the body of Christ. You know what else that is? It's jealousy. It's envy. Have you ever wondered, man, I wish I could do that. Or I wish I could do that. I wish that was my giftedness. Well, God has given you a gift. 
You don't need to envy others who have the gift that you don't have because that's the gift you want. You see, because as Paul goes on, the idea is we're all part of the body. We are all needed. And as we go on and look down to verse 21, look at verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Now, we just looked at this, don't underestimate your giftedness. Because you're a foot, not the hand, doesn't mean you're not important. Now he says, he's changing the, the, the whole argument a little bit. He says, verse, um, did I jump to verse 18? Yes. Uh, as we look at this, um, he, he says, but verse 18, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them. Let me wait till verse 21 just a minute. Got ahead of myself here. But in fact, verse 18, God has placed the parts in the body, right? The foot, the hand, the eye, the ear, the nose. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying to the to the, as the parts in the body, he's talking about this whole business. He gets to verse 21. Now he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Because what we're told here in verses 18 and 19 is that God has sovereignly placed every one of us, all the parts of the body, as he wanted into the body. He has a plan. He has a strategy for each of us who know Jesus to use the spiritual gift or gifts that he has given to us. That's what he's saying. God, in fact, has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, all of us, just as he wanted them to be. He has a plan for how the church, each local church, should operate. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, what's Paul saying? Well, basically, he says, just like you shouldn't underestimate your importance, don't overestimate your importance. Don't think that because you're the eye, you can say to the hand, hey, hey, hand, <laughs> we don't need you. I'm the eye. We don't need you. And you could take that analogy anywhere you want. What, what's the idea? What's he saying? No. We do need. Don't overestimate your importance to the church, to the body of Christ. You don't have any right as an eye to say to the hand, oh, we don't need you. You don't have any right the, to, to say as an ear to the, to the nose, I don't need you. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Because the body has been placed together as God chose to accomplish his perfect will. Verse 24, but God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. I never have seen this before. You say, man, Glenn, you seem to say that a lot. Well, I, I've ne I don't know. I've, I don't know how many times I've read through 1 Corinthians 12. And I looked at verse 24, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. What? 
In other words, the parts that might say, well, I'm not good enough, I'm inferior, I'm just a foot, I'm not the hand, therefore I'm not part of the body, I'm not important. And what does Paul say? God gives greater honor to those who need it. What's that? You know what God's doing? He's leveling the playing field. He's balancing the books. If you happen to think that you're not that important, that you have a gift that isn't seen all the time, that you're one of those behind-the-scenes kind of people that works hard but doesn't get any credit because nobody ever sees what you're doing, Paul says, but God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Is that cool? Folks, if we think any of us are inferior, if we think any of us are not needed, if we think somebody is more important than than we are, guess what? God's going to balance the books. God's going to level the playing field because God is going to give you greater honor. Why? Because you lack it. God takes care of that because we're all... And why does he do that? Verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. You see, there were those who wanted the spectacular gifts wanted to be able to speak in tongues, wanted to be able to do the miraculous, wanted to be able to do the healing. And, and that's what they, why? Because that would gain them notoriety. It would be what everybody sees. It would put us up front and, and ooh, yeah, look, they got the gift of healing or they can speak in tongues. Now, this is the context of what's going on here in the church of Corinth. And we'll see more of that as we move through chapters 13 and 14. And yet what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. What that does is is divide the church. Because those people who wanted the spectacular gifts had been obviously given other gifts. And they only wanted the gifts that everybody could see, that that people thought were sensational and powerful. And Paul says here, no, don't worry about that. God takes care of that. He'll balance the book so that there's no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. We saw that in chapter 11 at the Lord's Supper. Those who had money, the well-to-do, the wealthy, looked down on those who didn't. Got drunk at the Lord's Supper, ate all the food at the Lord's Supper, left nothing for the have-nots. And what Paul is saying here is, you know what? God takes care of this and he gives us the gifts that we have so that we won't be divided. We will recognize that God is the one who decides all of that. And then ultimately, so that we should have equal concern for each other. Man, talk about equality. We hear all about that today. Equality does have nothing to do with your race, your ethnicity, your social status, your economic status, your athletic status, your academic status, has everything to do as a believer with how we stand before God. And he takes care of the honor we need if we think we need it 
or if we think we don't have it, God takes care of that. But he's talking about the fact that we are equal. And, and exact quality, equality, and perfect balance in the church. That's how God designed each local church. No division, equal concern. That equal concern is a deep seated emotional feeling it's a real concern or care so that we really he goes on verse 26 if one part suffers every part suffers with it if one part is honored every part rejoices Marjorie McGrew passed away last night she's with Jesus We need to feel for Ben. 64 years, Paul, I think it was, married. And Beth and their sons, David and Tim, and their families. We'll be getting more details, but that just happened late last night. and We need to be praying for them. We need to be caring for them, concerned. We'll have opportunity to do that. Jake Antola, got to see Jake. Is he sitting over there? I don't, John, I don't have my glasses. Probably no. Nope, he's not, right? No. But Jake is home, and uh, I was all, all wrapped up, but Jessica showed me some pictures. She said, are you okay with this? I'm like, yes, I can handle that one, yeah. But we need to pray for Jake. We feel for the pain and the hurt. In fact, when I saw some of those pictures, it was like, ah, you feel that. We need to do, we, we need to think, George Cobb, Sharon, is that, he's got COVID. We need to pray for George and Sharon. We've been asked to pray for Adam and Emily Kashuba. Adam and Emily both have COVID. And, uh, and it's been rough, so we need to pray for them. Remember, we announced a couple weeks ago, Nancy Patton, Don died, went home to be with Jesus. These are people that are hurting. We need to hurt with them. We rejoice with people who rejoice. We hurt, we suffer with those who hurt and suffer. That's the value of the body. You see, that's the church. You see, we, many times we just feel like going to church is just all about showing up at 930 in this building. It's not church. It's a service when the church gathers together. But folks, it's a whole lot more than what happens here on Sunday morning at 9.30. It's about being one. It's about being a body together. One body, many parts. Just like you think of all the parts that make up your physical body, right? There's all these parts, many parts, Paul talks about, that make up the church, the body of Christ. And then he summarizes it all up in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You are Christ's body. All that Paul has just said, again, he's saying to all of us, you are, we are are Christ's body. We are the body of Christ. And all that Paul has just talked about as it relates to giftedness, 
and of using our abilities and caring for one another and not being divided is we are responsible to practice all of that as the body of Christ. No division, equal concern, compassion for one another. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. Verse 28, and again, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gives a feeling of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. I don't know what you think when you read that. Verse 28, God has placed, again, he's sovereignly placed each individual person within the church with the gifts that they have. Here he says, and we saw that they're all equal. Right? You got that. We spent time talking about that just a minutes ago. But now he says, but God's place in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Wait a minute. I thought everybody was equal. How could that be? This seems to go against that. What, what do you mean, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers? Well, first of all, I believe that Paul's talking here about the universal church because apostles are in this list. And I believe in Scripture, we'll find as we move through that there are only a limited number of apostles. I'm not going to go into that, but if you wanted to check Acts chapter 1, verses 20, 21, 22, right in there, you'll see what they said, what they decided when they were replacing Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. And there were more than twelve. There wasn't a a limitless number of apostles, but the fact that he's talking about that, there were a limited number of apostles, so there could not necessarily have been an apostle in every local church. Would have been impossible. And we're going to see that, I believe, that is the gift. uh, When the the last apostle died, which probably would have been John, the one who wrote John, 1 John in the book of Revelation, probably that gift faded. It ceased to exist. Now, let me give you a little bit more there. Because the equality has to do with one another standing before God and the abilities that God gives. What we're talking about is the emphasis shifting from a mutual care of one another to the benefit for the church. And when Paul says here, first the apostles, second the prophets, third the teachers, he's talking about the results that benefited the church from the giftedness of those individuals. Notice he's talking about individuals. He's not talking about a nebulous gift that somebody had. He's talking about people, prophets, apostles, teachers. And then he goes on, and then miracles, then gifts of healing. Those aren't people. Those are God-given spiritual gifts. What we're talking about is individuals here. Paul stops using numbers when he gets to the healing and the helping and the guidance and the different kinds of tongues because this is not an exhaustive list. We talked about the list that we looked back earlier in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 12. We saw that last week. But we just said there's also a list in Romans 12. There's a list in Ephesians 4. There's some mentioned in 1 Peter 4. So what we're talking about here is that when he puts a first and a second and a third, and that's it. He doesn't go beyond that. We're talking about the value to the building up of the church, the body of Christ. Their importance in that regard. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 2, and for the sake of time, I have this one on the screen here, and you can write it down. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people 
and also members of his household. Talking Jews and Gentiles here. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets were gifted men that God gave to the church for the beginning stages, the foundational stages of the early church. That's what Paul says. Now we're going to go ahead a couple chapters to chapter 4. And in chapter 4 and verse 11, um, Paul says, uh, So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And again, these are individuals, apostles and prophets, who we saw earlier were foundational individuals gifted by God to be part of building the foundation of the church as it started in Acts chapter 2. He also talks about evangelists and pastors and teachers, and, and they're, all of these were to equip God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, would be built up. The foundation was laid. The church was planted. We've moved on. Apostles and prophets, in their strict sense of understanding what Scripture says, are no longer needed. But he goes on and talks about teachers. Well, oh, back, yes, here teachers, but back to our text in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, apostles, prophets, teachers. We still need teachers to continue to teach that's what we're talking about. Second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and so forth. Now, if you remember, Paul's still talking to the church in Corinth. That church was still growing. It was still being built. It was probably in the mid-60s when that church was going on there, and Paul was writing this letter. And, and that's why those gifts were still necessary. And we'll deal with when did, when did these gifts cease, I think, if you go back to the begin, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, the gifts that Paul lists there, I think all of those were part of the spectacular sign gifts that were no longer needed. Some would say, well, probably all that except faith. Well, no, I think in the list he was talking about the, the foundational gifts that were needed to help the apostles build the church so that when they shared the message of the gospel... People would respond because they would see the signs and the wonders. We'll talk more about that as we move through here and, and see what God also said. But as we look at this, folks, the idea of what Paul says, not wearing them anyway, right? So of what Paul's talking about here, um, he goes on to verse 29 through 31, are all apostles are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And what's the obvious answer? No. That's why Paul's saying it that way. So he just got done talking about evaluating or valuing the teachers, not evaluating, the, the apostles, prophets, and teachers as first, second, and third, why? Because they added benefit to the building up of the body of Christ. 
The apostles and prophets, Paul said in Ephesians, were to build the foundation. And so as we look at it now, we find out that not everybody has the same gift. And he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Not everyone is gifted the same way. And as we look at this, the manifestations of the Spirit are given to different people to accomplish different things. And, and then he says, closes out by desire the greater gifts. Again, wait a minute, how could that be? Because Paul just said, it is the Spirit of God that places each of us in our giftedness within the body. He gives us the gifts. We don't get them because we pray harder or because we have special uh, or, 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 or we live a certain way or because we speak in tongues or show other spiritual powers. No, no, no. God gives that. So what, what can it mean when he says eagerly desire the greater gifts? I think, and, and this is one of those difficult but texts, I think it has to do with the fact that he's telling the church to desire, to seek after gifted individuals. It is not about adding to themselves more gifts because God's taken care of that. The moment we're saved, we have all the giftedness we're going to get. But what he's saying is seek gifted individuals, gifted people that will provide more value and benefit to your church. And as you're seeking to build the church in Corinth, pray for, look for, seek out those gifted individuals, the best gifts. Look for at that point the prophets or the apostles or the teachers. Those who will have the greatest value in building the church. Seek the greater gifts. That's what he's talking about. Real quick. So, in light of all of this, what do we need to do? Two things. Two things. Number one, become in your daily behavior what you have already become in God's sight. I got that out of a book, one of my commentaries as I look, in, and I, I saw that. Become in your daily behavior what you have already become in God's sight. You know what that is? That's the theme that we've been talking about. God's holy people must become what they already are. Go back to that quote for me, if you will. Become in your daily behavior what you've already become in God's sight. You see, what's that? Act like a believer because you are a believer. That's what Paul's saying. Act like a believer because you are a believer. Paul said that back in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, as God's holy people live holy lives. You've been declared holy, righteous before God. Now act like it. We need to do that, folks. If we're going to build the church, being holy means we use the gifts that God's given us. And then number two, number two, your gift is essential to the efficient functioning of the church. That was what I gave you last week, but I wanted to repeat it. And I want to share with this scripture. Your gift is essential. It is efficient to the efficient functioning of the church. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Here's one of those passages. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards, managers of God's grace in its various forms. Peter is writing to each of us as believers, and he says, you have a gift. Each of you, use it as a steward, recognizing that we will one day give an account for how we've used the abilities that God has given to us. For you not to use your gift is disobedience. 
It's to be an unfaithful steward, not a faithful steward. That's what Peter is talking about here as he lays this out for us. Folks, we have a job to do. We had the ministry fair last week. We have all kinds of needs within our ministries. We need people. God has gifted, if you know Jesus Christ, every one of you in some way. If you're not serving God right now, you're not being a faithful steward. In fact, you're disobedient to what God's given you in your life. I would challenge you today. What do you need to do? Be holy. Be who you already are. Live it so that people see Jesus in your life. And get busy and serve. You know, we many times in church here, you know what? We're not engaged or we're new and, and we don't seem like we fit. We've been here for a while and we can't plug in. And, and that's not a criticism. I, I get that. But you know one of the quickest, most effective ways to get engaged and get plugged into a church is to serve. It's to use the God-given ability that you have for the glory of God and the building up of the body of Christ. Folks, it is so much fun when you serve God because he's gifted you and that means you're going to succeed. That means you will be good at what you do because it's a spiritual gift a God-given special ability to serve and the power that you need to get the job done comes with the gift. Wow, what an amazing, encouraging truth. And I trust if you're struggling to fit in, talk to us. We'd love to get you plugged in to serving here at Heritage. Would you stand with me as we close in a word prayer? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him because of your love for us to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, the debt that we owed to forgive us. And God, thank you that the moment we were saved, you gave us an ability to serve. It's just an amazing an amazing gift, whatever that may be for each of us. But each of us who know Jesus have been gifted to serve you. God, help us to do it. Help us to use that gift as a faithful steward, as Peter says. For your glory, God, so that people see you and us. And for the good, the building up of your local church here, the body of believers that we call heritage. Oh God, would you use us? Would you help us to build your church according to your plan for your glory for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.